episode two. In 2018, Christian apologists and authors Ravi Zacharias and Vince Vitali spoke at, at an open forum at the University of Florida. Vince Vitali, who studied and later taught at Princeton and the University of Oxford, was the first to speak. Having been a boxer, and I think he was a soccer player as well, um, while at Princeton, he opened up with a sports analogy, which went like this. I've always been a lover of sports, but here's a sporting experience I would never want to have. Being thrown into a game without knowing when it had started, when it will finish, what the objective of the game was, or what any of the rules were. You'd probably ask the other players around you to answer those four questions. What if they answered with many different answers? Or what if they simply carried on playing uninterested in your question, looking at you oddly for even asking it? Well, then you'd probably try to find a coach to answer those questions. But what if you saw the coach on the sidelines and he's looking at the chaos and he's just saying, great job, everyone. You're all doing fantastic. I have a first place trophy waiting for all of you. Well, then you'd probably try to find the referee or the umpire for definitive answers to your questions. But what if you learned that the other players didn't like the calls that he or she was making and sent him home? It is our knowledge of the start, the finish, the objective, and the rules of a game that provide us with the freedom to play it and enjoy it in a meaningful way. If you don't know the answers to those four fundamental questions, all you can do on the field or on the court is pretend and hope that no one notices that, that you have no idea what you're doing or why you're doing it. Sadly, this, this is not a game. This is real life. Many people are deeply confused about these four fundamental questions, which Ravi has delineated. Questions of origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Where did we come from? Where are we headed? What is the purpose of life? And how should we live in light of it? How many of us can say with confidence that we have answers to those questions? How many of us are pretending our way through life? I'll follow that quote um, by sharing that one of the most common objections I've heard over the years as to why people don't believe the Bible is, is that it was written by men. Men who not only are imperfect beings themselves, but their interpretations of the scriptures can be and are often imperfect as well. Growing up Catholic, this objection to the validity of scripture was never brought up, discussed, or even wrestled with. It was just something you kind of accepted. So having never been asked this question, let alone never having heard answers to it, when I was asked in college as a new believer, I was stumped. It basically became a point of, well, you can read the Bible, maybe even dedicate your lives to study it, but you can't possibly believe every single word or even try to impose it on anyone else because it's based off of this, this human-created set of misinterpreted laws, a system, if you will, that is indeed very flawed. And I'll get back to this so-called flawed system in a bit. If you have ever been asked this question or have had this question yourself, let me remind you of a few key details. The Bible was composed over the course of about 1,500 years, 
by over 40 different authors from various walks of life and socioeconomic status. A fisherman, a physician, kings, farmers, shepherds, hunters, governors, judges, a tax, a tax collector, and a tent maker. It was written in three different languages, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, on three different continents, Asia, Europe, and Africa. If I stop there, you may be inclined to object with, so? So a bunch of historians, archaeologists, and church leaders found all these ancient manuscripts and later put it all together into one big, into one book. Big whoop. But let me add this. The manuscripts discovered, dated, and recorded over this 1,500-year span by authors from all walks of life, most of whom did not know each other, three different languages, three different continents, all communicate the same central message, the very message that answers the four most important questions that I mentioned earlier. The message, the message that pointed to one person. Now that, that's miraculous. Have you ever come across information that was so logically consistent, yet so rich and groundbreaking? Like a piece of information that essentially solves the case or ties numerous loose ends together, but is also incredibly like life-giving? Information that is reasonable and intellectual, but also feeds your soul and multiplies your joys and affections? That's what it felt like for me when I read Second Peter chapter 1 verses 16 through 21 which go like this for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we were made known to you the power and coming of our lord jesus christ but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty for when he received honor and glory from god the father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory this is my beloved son with whom i am well pleased we ourselves heard this voice this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in the, damp, in the, in the dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So this is basically what Peter is saying to the churches in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. What he what he's basically saying is what we have spoken to you, we didn't take them as myths and we weren't and they weren't folk tales we received by word of mouth and then passed down to you, but we were eyewitnesses. We witness God himself crown Jesus in all of his glory and say this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. We heard his voice, and we were with him on the holy mountain when he did it. Peter here is referring to the transfiguration in, in Luke chapter 9. But not only that, um, but all of these prophecies that have been fulfilled were not of us. We didn't initiate them, we didn't make them up, nor did we, nor did we fulfill them ourselves. But, and here's the kicker, not a single one of these prophecies come from someone's own interpretation, but from men carried along by the Holy Spirit. 
So over 40 different authors being moved by one singular author, the Holy Spirit. The reason I decided to include these verses from the second letter of Peter was because they served as the first stone that shattered the glass of the typical written by men objection. This was so like absolutely eye-opening to me because it basically like illuminated the dark hallway of biblical certainty um, in its authorship. It gave me this, this complete and utter security almost in the composing process of the Bible. Not only that, but um, one of my favorite Bible teachers named uh, Vodi Bakum summed up these verses into, into a response that you could give to anyone who would ask, like, why do you believe the Bible? He summed it up uh, like this. He said, I believe, I believe the Bible because it is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report supernatural supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim that their writings were divine rather than human in origin. Now, if even after that, someone asks, I don't know, Chris, I need something more, something more concrete and observable, because I don't know if I could trust Peter since he was the author of the of the the passage that you just read. I mean, Jesus did call him Satan in the 16th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. I mean, it's true. He did. Um, So, okay, fair enough. Let's go to Jesus himself then. We can all agree that all of Christianity hinges on the life, death, and resurrection of the person of Jesus. He is both the like the Mount Everest mountaintop and the very earth that serves as its foundations for the entire belief system. So what does he say about the validity and reliability of scripture? So in the gospel of Luke chapter 24, starting at verse 13, after a group of women had discovered that the tomb where Jesus was buried was empty, Jesus met them and began walking with them. At this point in time, they didn't recognize him. Um, verse 16 actually reads, uh, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So after the women expressed the shock they had upon discovering the empty tomb to him, Jesus replies with reverberating words, starting at verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So Jesus, the pinnacle figure of the most transcendent belief system, the very person who didn't claim he knew of a way or had a truth or knew how to obtain eternal life. But but he said that he was the only way, the absolute truth and the most fulfilling life. This same person said that the entire Old Testament was about him, all of it, the law and the prophets. He didn't just become relevant 2,000 years ago. He's been present all along, and this is what he communicates to them. Okay, Chris. So, cool. I get it. Jesus is the only way we can be reconciled to a holy God because he took my sins and died in my place. 
he received my sin, I receive it, and then in turn, I receive his righteousness if I repent of my sins and trust and believe in him. And because of his resurrection, because he lives, I also, I also shall live. Cool, I get that. But what if I don't trust Luke as a gospel writer, since what you just recited came from his gospel? All right, well, um, Luke was a physician, a first century physician at that, so he wasn't uneducated or oblivious to how profound the words he recorded were. Let me share the first couple of verses of his gospel with you, and then I'll get back to what Jesus said in that passage. Starting at verse 1 of his gospel, he says, um, Inasmuch as many have ever undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for, for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So in these verses, Luke has taken the role of a, of a, of a historian. In verse 3, he says that he followed all things closely for quite some time so that he may present an orderly account for the man he's addressing in this gospel by the name of Theophilus. So, so like as a highly educated physician, like all physicians do, he followed the evidence. He followed the history, compared and contrasted what people were claiming to hear and believe, connected the dots, and composed this gospel so that Theophilus, um, as well as the rest of the believing community, could, as verse 4 states, could have certainty of the things that had been taught already. It not only served as confirmation, the gospel of Luke not only serves as confirmation, but also kind of like an answer key. So just in case someone else came along with the with a different gospel, another gospel that taught something different, he can and we can refer back to it. Now, to begin explaining the title of his episode, um, Jesus saying that the entire Old Testament pointed pointed to him is why I love the Old Testament. I wouldn't say I wouldn't say I enjoy reading it more than the New Testament. I just find it just as substantial and rich as the New. I think this way because in the Old Testament, God essentially establishes and solidifies his qualifications, his credentials, if you will. It's like he lays out it's like he lays out his resume and all the events, his proof of majesty, divine nature, commandments and statutes, and presentation of all his promises. And then once the New Testament is introduced with the person of Jesus specifically, it's like he signs his name at the dotted line. It is finished. He signed his own it's like he signed his own name at the end of his written word, kind of like how nurses do with the letters RN, uh doctor doctors with MD, uh PhD and um MS, PTA, whatever, like for every for anyone with those completed le levels of education. Um, through the Old Testament, though, God basically unravels his, his work, his power, his abilities, and everything he's capable of. Most importantly, though, he establishes his law. Ah, yes, the dreaded commandments so many people oppose. The very same commandments that cause people to argue with 
you know, the Bible is just a book of rules that are impossible to follow and then describe this God who basically damns you to hell if you don't succeed in following them. At this point in whatever the conversation is, I try to emphasize that the Bible is mostly historical recollection, like recollect, recollection of events. It's not just a list of rules believers follow in order to get into heaven. When referring to God's commandments, um, I'd like to use the example of a bike you receive on Christmas. Upon like receiving this bike, um, your parents or whoever gave it to you, um, probably your parents because they're the ones that would set up set the rules um they don't just give it to you with full reign of it usually get a helmet or they force you to wear one and then a couple rules like you know look both ways and you know walk your bike when crossing the street uh be back before it gets dark don't go down these certain streets or um don't go past the the railroad tracks down the road um as children this is the point where we usually smack our teeth um, when we hear these things, we usually respond with, okay, dad, or okay, mom, sure. Um, these rules, however, commandments, if you will, aren't given along with the gift to withhold you from enjoyment. They're not given in order, they're not given in order to impede on your thirst for freedom. They're given because your father who has a much under, much higher understanding of the consequences or awareness of what could go wrong, loves and cares for you and wants to protect and preserve your life. He gives them because he wants you to continue enjoying his gift. These rules, in a sense, serve as a guardrail, not as a fence. But there is a dangerous risk of, of getting into this mindset of, all right, if I just listen to my parents and follow all, all of their rules, then they'll get me more things and I'll have more freedom with more gifts. And then eventually all of my perfect rule following will get me into heaven or, or the contrast. Oh no, I messed up again. Now my father is not going to give me anything anymore, bless me anymore, and I'll lose my favor with him and possibly my salvation. I kind of meshed the analogy there at the end, but you see what I'm getting at. Believers and sometimes unbelievers kind of have a have an idea where they get into this mindset of obedience equals blessings. Disobedience equals condemnation. If you do get into this mindset, which which many believers do at times, including myself, let me share something very important regarding this mindset. I think it's safe to say that believers and non-believers alike um, perceive Jesus to be this revolutionary figure that died for our sins and preached a message of love, compassion, and selflessness. That's, that's kind of undeniable across the board. So how come he answered with the law rather than with love in three, to three specific individuals? Um, so in Matthew 22, a lawyer among the Pharisees with kind of a malicious attitude um, tested Jesus by asking him, which is the greatest commandment of the law? 
And then in Luke 10, a different lawyer seeking to justify himself asks, asks um, who his neighbor is, uh, which then causes this is when um, when Jesus gives the parable of the Good Samaritan. And then in Luke 18, uh, a rich young ruler asks him uh, which good deed he needed to do in order to inherit inter eternal life. In all three instances, each individual had a misconstrued view of, of this law. Jesus, um, he answered the way that he did because um, they didn't see the law the way that it was intended to be seen. Um, some of you may have heard this analogy, so bear with me um, as I try to expound on it a little. Um, the law God gives to the people of Israel in the first five books of the Bible all, I think it's like 613, I believe, um, they're reduced down to the common 10 that we're familiar with and are taught at, at Sunday school or catechism class, you know, growing up. This law is, so, is kind of like a mirror, which the three individuals that I mentioned earlier failed to see it as. It's a mirror because it serves as a way to show a person how, fil how filthy they really are and how much they fall short to this standard, um, how much they fall short uh, of a clean slate or a clean face in order to be made right with the holy, perfect God. Now, here's where the three men failed. In order to get clean, they tried to use the law to do the job. They tried to take the mirror off the wall and clean themselves with the mirror itself. But that isn't the mirror's purpose. That isn't the law's purpose. What they should have done and what Jesus implored everyone to do is to follow him, to believe, to repent and believe in him, to essentially reach down, turn on the faucet, turn on the living water, as Jesus called himself in John 4, and do what the law could never do. And that's to cleanse you of all your unrighteousness and imperfection so that when you look into the mirror again, God's perfect standard um, God's perfect standard being the mirror, his law, you are presented holy and righteous. Now, here's, here's another beautiful point with that. Jesus says he doesn't come to abolish the law. He doesn't come to shatter the mirror in order to dismiss it, in order to dismiss it all, because that would kind of be unjust. He would be essentially breaking the law. But he said that he fulfilled it. He fulfilled all of it, the entire law. So at this point, you might be inclined to ask, well, Chris, see, see, that's what I mean. That's the problem. If we just didn't have any mirrors, any, any mirror at all, any religious law, then there wouldn't be any issues. The wars in the Middle East wouldn't be present. And this, this incredible division in the church wouldn't even exist. But wait, you know, here's the thing. If we do that and we try to live like we do, um, we would construct our own imperfect mirrors. We would build our own, but here's the point I'm trying to make. And please stay with me on this. I know this is a longer episode than last time. Um, but my point is, after we will build our own mirror, after we build our own mirror, we wouldn't point it to ourselves to, to see what's wrong with us to try to clean ourselves up, we would begin to point ours at others and judge them according to our own imperfect standard. 
it is at that moment, I believe, that it'll be much worse for all of us in the end. Much worse. Last episode, I included a verse from a song by Beautiful Eulogy. Uh, so I think I'm going to keep that keep that rolling. Um, it may not be a verse from a song every time. It might be a portion of a poem I really like or something. Uh, but this time I wanted to share a verse from a song called Just Talking by a Christian rapper named Lavoisier. It goes like this. I think we'd all agree that we all fall, fall short of God's standard. So a concept of needing a savior shouldn't be strange to any of us because other people may not know, but we know who we really are. How could you ever think that you were good when you like when your life speaks louder than your words ever could? And we compare ourselves to other human beings, yeah. But when we die and stand before the Lord, they won't be there. The fornicator says, at least I don't steal. The thief says, well, at least I don't kill. The murderer says, at least I don't rape women. The rapist says, well, at least I don't rape children. Even the worst sinner wants to be a good person. You got it all mistaken. Wait, no, some, some. We're harsh on each other, lenient, lenient on our own vices. There's a word for that. It's called self-righteous. I'll be the first to tell you that I'm filthy. I'll uphold the truth even if it makes me guilty. So I'll stand up and tell it to the world. The Lamb of God take away the sins of the world. To kind of bring it full circle with the four major questions I mentioned at the very beginning um, with Vince Vitale's sports analogy, Christianity establishes a, this universal, universal standard that applies to every single person to have ever lived and will ever live. It's the perfect justice system fulfilled by the one and only perfect, um, sinless, majestic sacrifice on the cross, the cross of Jesus Christ. So, so why mention all of this? Why, you know, blab on about this law and this mirror and, you know, the gifts and all that stuff? It's because I want to assure you that believing in the God of the Bible is unbelievably substantial and crucial. It's not a leap into apparent nothingness. It's not just believing in what your family has raised you to believe. It's not an ancient, outdated belief system that you are bound to. It is outstanding, awe-inspiring, you know, absolutely secure and locked in its validity, but also stable and precious. But most importantly, it unveils, it unveils the God who preserved and protected not only his word, but his people. His people from all sorts of violent opposition. And he continues to do so today and will continue to do so in the future. He preserved it in spite of um, surrounding regions being so, so volatile, so malicious, trying to extinguish this, this seed that he promised in Genesis. So I, I said this in the first episode, and I'll say it again. My goal is for you to think critically about this. You know, I, I can't I can't force you to do anything. I can't even force you to listen to this entire episode. Um, my calling is to bring you to the law, face to face to the mirror, face to face to the mirror, but but not keep you there because that wouldn't be loving at all. How loving would it be if I'm if if a father or a mother um, makes a kid uh, 
you know, face the mirror and say, like, this is what this is what is wrong with you. This is what is wrong with the world. That wouldn't be loving at all. So my goal is my my calling. It's to it's to present to you this magnanimous power of the redeeming blood of Jesus Christ, the living water who who died for your sins and rose again so that you may live. That's my heart for you. I just want you to live in freedom. So I'll, I'll conclude with a quote by Ravi Zacharias, which, which goes as follows. It says, Jesus didn't come to make bad men good. He came, he came to make dead men alive. Thank you so much uh, for listening, for listening, guys. Um, Words can't express how much I appreciate you taking the time to listen to this whole episode, even if you had to listen to it in sections and portions. Um, earlier this week, I actually reread this, the description of this podcast and realized that I haven't really addressed a lot about how culture has led many of us astray, um, specifically me. Um, but the next episode, um, I will definitely cover a specific topic that has tormented me since I was eight years old. Um, I'm going to talk about pornography. It's going to be incredibly vulnerable, but nonetheless, as always, as what my my deepest intention is, it's going to be God glorifying. So thanks again for listening. And remember, don't knock it till you know, don't knock it till you try it. Oh, and Please, please, please read your Bibles. (laughs) Peace.